This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 22. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 22, the growth of cinema in pre-revolutionary Iran. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 21 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 22. We know that Iranian cinema and filmmakers have had a tremendous impact in the last few decades. Led by icons like Kiarostami or Panahi, and of course Oscar winner Asghar Farhadi more recently, Iranian film has been celebrated internationally for its artistic significance and its cultural importance. But even contemporary Iranian cinema has had its ups and downs, and the history of film in Iran is particularly unique in its strange path to global prominence and the culture it has spawned along the way inside and outside of Iran. So what if we are to look at the genesis and growth of modern cinema in Iran back to the mid-20th century? And more specifically, how can we assess the influence of Western culture and Hollywood films on what developed in Iran in the pre-revolutionary years? 
My guest for this episode is an expert on this very subject. Dr. Kaveh Askari is an associate professor and director of the Film Studies Program at Michigan State University. His research and teaching focus is on cinema and media history in a global context with a special interest in art cinema, media circulation, and the cinemas of the Middle East. Dr. Askadi was born in the United States to an Iranian father and a Dutch mother. He obtained both his master's and his doctorate from the University of Chicago. He completed an Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral fellowship in the humanities in the Department of Film and Media at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Askadi is the author of Making Movies into Art and co-editor of Performing New Media. He has also co-edited special issues of Film History, the Journal of Religion and Popular Culture, and Early Popular Visual Culture, Early Cinemas of the Middle East and North Africa. His brand new book that was just published in January is entitled Relaying Cinema in Mid-Century Iran, Material Cultures in Transit, and right now, Dr. Kaveh Askadi joins me from East Lansing, Michigan today. Hello, sir. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful uh, to be uh, a part of this program in whatever small way I can be. Thank you so much for doing this. You've written a most interesting book, and I hope we can get into some of the detail of it whilst keeping this as accessible as possible for a general audience. So you're going to have to temper your film nerd tendencies at times, Dr. Askati. Is that okay? I'll do my best. Yeah, it's hard for me to temper my film nerd energies, but we'll we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see if you can do it. I mean, actually, let me start with you. You you were a kid who was born and raised in the U.S., albeit a kid named Kaveh with an Iranian dad. When did you first take a keen interest in the film culture of Iran? Well, I you know I think, and this is I'm sure something we'll talk about more, but. Um, you know the 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 new wave films uh the, you know the art films both the ones made uh, before the revolution and after those were really important to me deciding to pursue this you know to get a phd in film studies and to make this my line of work um but i think even as a child uh there was a pronounced uh, cinephile culture in my house um you know partly for iranian films uh but also very much for hollywood films um and the, the twist is that it was my father who ha who was um a, a cinephile and um the hollywood films that he was most interested in telling me about as an 8 year old or whatever uh were films that he had seen in iran in the 60s and 70s right mm. so there was something about even these hollywood films uh, that he was so fascinated with that was also steeped in Iranian film culture of this era. That's so interesting. You are literally exploring the film culture that your dad lived. Absolutely, yeah. So so you've said, and let me quote you, the cultural history of media in modern Iran is distinguished by an intense love of cinema linked at each phase in its history to uncertain forms of access. So if I have this correctly, you're arguing that to a certain extent, we cannot look at film culture in Iran in the 20th century, or even maybe culture itself in Iran, without looking at what the nature of access to the content coming from outside of the country was and how it was circulated into Iran. Would that be correct? It's, and it's, I would say, I would even state it more strongly than you've stated it, that, that it's, the access 
that shapes the experience of the film culture and the experience of individual films. So that, you know, it makes a difference whether someone is engaging with, uh, you know, a 35 millimeter print that was printed in Technicolor at, at this particular uh, lab and then circulated and re-edited. Uh, that changes the experience of the, of the film. It makes a difference if somebody is watching a classic film on VHS tape uh, that is circulated by a VHS dealer in the 1980s. 80s. Uh, and then when the film runs out, they see a little remnant of, a, of another film that was on that tape uh, and then just record it over. I mean, these are all parts of the texture of, of film experience. So to write a history that is that, that foregrounds questions of access, of obstructions, but also the way that films endure, the way they move across borders and the way they endure through time, is to explore this aspect of the film experience that often gets overlooked uh, if we only privilege uh, you know, famous directors or sort of individuals as responsible for the entirety of a film's meaning. Because meaning is created in a context and it's created differently every new time a film is seen, every new time a film is traded, exchanged, uh, and, um, and watched, yeah, by, by, uh, you know, a variety of different audiences and communities. I'm going to even put it more simpler than that, if, if, if I may. Access to different kinds of art, especially popular culture, um, forms, uh, shapes how we see things in general. It's like you get to know your favorite films um, by what your older sister taped on the VHS back in the 80s and 90s. And depending on the way she taped it and the, and the, and the, and the, and the quality of the tape, you get used to that being fit what film is. Would that be a, a very simple but adequate way of uh, explaining access? Exactly. Yeah. And the film, the film that you're watching has a certain skin. Uh, and if your sister taped it in a, a low quality recording session, it's, it's a low quality recording um, a format, it's going to have a different skin than a high quality recording format. And, and that affects uh, the way that you see the film originally, but also when you think about a film nostalgically, um, you remember seeing a film through that certain skin as well. And, and so it's, it's part of your understanding of history as, as well as your experience of new material. And I really do love this about your book because it is a, it is a, a rethinking. Like you're sort of going, okay, wait, everybody, take a look at this. This is, let's think about access. And particularly when we're talking about Iran, um, that is isolated. I mean, post-revolution, it's isolated for all kinds of reasons, but isolated just as a product of being in the Middle East and, you know, being uh, uh, not as um, uh, developed a culture or however you want to put it uh, through the 20th century, that those forms of access become very important to what is expected in the art and how the art develops. Even when we're talking about art that's being imported, how that is found, how it's discovered, um, again, parenthetically, and not to get too far off track here, but we've done a little series on our um, network called uh, uh, Why Pink Floyd, exploring why <laughs> the strange idea of why Pink Floyd has become this phenomenon amongst Iranians of a certain age, especially Pink Floyd is, you know, the greatest ever. Why? And a lot of that, it turns out, had to do with access. You know, Pink Floyd was the stuff that was being traded in cassette tapes that made it into people's uh, homes, especially post revolution so it 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 really affects uh, a, a culture and so I really do appreciate that about your book and in terms of a re or maybe not a revisioning but a vision of of how to see Iranian cinema mm-hmm 
Yeah, Pink Floyd is an excellent example. Yusef Cat Stevens would, I think, be another right if you're talking about um, access and and also this this um, this almost cult like appreciation of particular works of art and the way one one work of art gets sort of elevated to a a, 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 a status that um, that is just a result of the energy of all of all of the fans, right? Yes, I would place the um, strange fascination and love for Krista Berg. Uh, in, yeah. that ca- in that category, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, but, but not to get off topic. So, so before we talk about the mid-century and the changes in Iranian film culture that you explore in your book, that, based on this circulation and this access, um, if you don't mind, a scene setter, uh, uh, be the professor for a second and just take us back. While while there is some filmmaking in Iran in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, it isn't a huge industry, and by the time we get to the post-silent film era from, say, 1937 to 1947. Iran doesn't produce any of its own films in that period. But the flow of foreign films into Iran is happening. How should we view film culture in Iran before the 1950s, before we get to this chat of mid-century? Yeah, I would say experimental would be one um, interesting word to to describe it. Um, and experimental in the sense of, you know, always trying things practically, trying new things, uh, but also experimental having a certain kind of energy, right? And, and there's a there's a, a, a robust energy of experimentation that takes us through the silent era um, and into those sort of first um, uh, attempts to create feature films. Some of them uh, shot in India, uh, some of them shot in in Iran and in studios that were sort of assembled and then and then kind of came apart. Um, but it was a, a film culture that was very excited to uh, to showcase classics. I mean, I think this is really one of the discoveries for me is, um, you know, we often think about when films sort of move around the world, particularly celluloid because it's heavy and it's hard to transport and it can get scratched really easily and it takes a long time and it's expensive. Um, that once a film gets all scratched up and, and, and damaged or it's been circulating for 10 years, that it sort of loses some kind of value. But one of the exciting things for me in like reading through old issues of Etelot, for example, from the, from the 1920s, is the ways that exhibitors, um, like the, the, the owner of, uh, of Grand Cinema in, in on Lalazar Street, uh, the way the exhibitors looked at these worn elements of the prints, the scratched elements of the prints, the way that they've traveled the world, not as markers of the films being passe, but rather markers of their classic status, right? Uh-huh. The more scratches a film had, the more it had endured and had circulated around the world. And, and you know, this was evidence that the film had been seen by audiences in Moscow and Berlin and in New York. And, and, and this one film had played in all of those places. And that was actually foregrounded in the advertisements rather than concealed. That is so, you know, a lot of what you talk about in the book is about uh, the copying of films and, and how you, you lose generations of the filmmaking once once films or, you know, attempts are made to pirate them or copy them or whatever. So, and and if you go back far enough, there is no copying. It's You're saying there's an original film reel that's being traded around and it makes sense. They look at it like a, a battered suitcase. Oh, this is well-traveled. It must be a great film. It's, it's very interesting. You also talk about how Persian language facilitates a particular film culture in Iran. How so? Right. I mean, even in the silent era, right, we we had, um, uh, you know, uh, 
exhibitors that would employ narrators. Uh, they would uh, translate subtitle or translate intertitles in the, the silent films, uh, but also embellish and tell the audience a little bit about what was going on. Uh, but once you get into the sound period, this, this phenomenon really takes off. Because the, the films that are playing, uh, in Iran are still, um, even into the mid-century are, are primarily imports, uh, and they're, they're the ones that are drawing a really large box office and exhibitors kind of depend on them. Uh, but they are coming through intermediary channels in most cases. Uh, major film studios don't set up offices in Tehran until, um, a little bit later, uh, you know, the, the, the 60s and into the 70s. And um, these intermediaries are uh, in, in places like Cairo or in Beirut or, or through, um, through oil company cinemas um, along the Persian Gulf. And they are separated from, from Persian language and they don't really see what's going on in Iran. So there is an intense financial motivation for exhibitors, uh, for filmmakers in Iran to dub prints uh, because uh, a dubbed print can fetch, you know, three to six times as much in the box office as a subtitled print. They just attract a wider audience. Uh, there is a, you know, a, a culture of engineering in Iran where there's a, a, a strong interest in solving uh, problems with innovative engineering feats, right? And think of all the sound engineering that has to go into dubbing. And then there's the inability of Hollywood distributors, let's say Hollywood or, or distributors in, in Paris, for example, uh, to see what is going on in Iran um, and to see these dubbed films being made, uh, you know, in, into the 1960s. And so then the, the industry in Iran is allowed a ma major financial leverage because of the specifics of um, the sort of geographies of how films come into the country and the, the need for specific Persian uh, language uh, dubbing uh, or, or other forms of, of explanation. So it just let me stop you there because you've said a lot and that 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 is a, a brilliant summary of a lot of what I want to unpack, um, which you've sort of given us in, in terms of a, an introduction to some of what we what we can talk about here. So um, I'll come to the dubbing later because I just think it's a fascinating, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the role that dubbing has played in, in Persian film and Persian culture. Uh, but let me start with what you were just talking about in terms of the way Iran and the Middle East is seen. I mean, you, you make the case in this book that in the early 1950s, um, the Middle East, as you put it, is just seen as too difficult and as a failed opportunity for U.S. distributors. So that's despite the keen interest you've talked about uh, that Iranians have for film. What, what do you mean by a failed opportunity or too difficult? Yeah, this is all from the perspective of the distributors um, and the, the, the producers of these films elsewhere, that they want to maximize their profits. They want to increase the share of profits from, uh, from distribution around the world. And they're able to do some of that with um, with other large cities um, in the Middle East, where Arabic is the primary language that's spoken. Um, but Iran is just a tiny fraction of a fraction of the profits of these industries. So for them, they see it as a failure. They can't access the market in a way that is meaningful uh, for their business, uh, you know, model. And that creates a point of invisibility. That I, I use this term. Again. Yes. 
Yeah, you say the invisibility of Iranian cinema, uh, which I thought was is an interesting term. And you talk about, as you just said, the revenues for foreign or Western films playing in Iran being remarkably low. I think at one point you say that Iran accounts for like 0.1% of revenue coming from foreign markets. Uh, and Tehran becomes not even a secondary market uh, to, to Beirut and Cairo. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, beyond Baghdad. It, it, so that's what feeds the idea of cinema being invisible in Iran to Western production companies? Yes, yeah, that they they have amortized their prints long before they reach uh, Iran. And for them, you know, these prints are, you know, they're they're valuable commodities, but they're also liabilities, right? Because a you know, print, especially if it's made on like nitrate stock that could be flammable, or if it's deteriorating, you know, any any object requires maintenance, and maintenance costs money. And so for the, many of these distributors, they just wanted to offload the cost of maintenance by just getting their prints out as cheaply as possible. You know, 500 bucks, uh, 700 bucks, send it off and just ask for proof that after two years or so, the film is destroyed. Yeah, yeah that's the other thing where they want the film destroyed. <laughs> yes. So that so that it can't be, I guess, used without them gaining some some profit or something right i mean that 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 is let me get to that because that's also fascinating but i just i'm just curious about this this weird you know iran being such a a lousy market because at the same time you talk about baghdad in iraq being considered a more important market for western film distributors in the 50s even though the film going populations were much higher in tehran and iran than in baghdad so Mm -hmm. why is there that discrepancy uh, well, I, I think part of it was that the, the main importer there is a guy named Naim Iser. He was well-connected, and he owned the, the King Ghazi cinema in, in Baghdad. So for him, they could make a little bit of money uh, sending their prints to him. And then when he was done with them, he would make regular trips to Tehran, and he would sell his you know, third-hand or fourth-hand prints. So this is in you know, the 1950s, early 1950s. He would sell his third and fourth-hand prints to them. Uh, and then by the time they had reached that point, they were com- no one at the origination point of those films knew uh, what they were doing. And in fact, they were filling theaters, they were filling auditoriums and, and, and really f- serving as a kind of foundation for a robust film culture. So we're, we're talking about two things with respect to the film culture in Iran. There's the films that are being imported, and then there's the films that are being indigenously made, or uh, and we'll get to whether they're being borrowed in terms of ideas and stories and 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 methods from from American cinema or Western cinema. But uh, before we get to the heyday of Iranian films and the new wave cinema that begins, say, in the late '60s with folks like Masoud Kimiayi and, and uh, Dariush Merjui. You focused us to a certain extent on the years in your book directly preceding these masters. And if you forgive me for putting it in sort of blunt terms, why should we care about films that were made in Iran in the mid 20th century, in the 1950s? I mean, before the great new wave. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it's a, it's a good question to be rock about, I think. Um, because I think this is a, it's a challenge for us. Um, I, I think, and I, I imagine your experience is similar. You know, you grow up with a sense of film farsi as something that is not worth the kind of careful attention as other other B grade, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. B grade, derivative, sensational, um, you know, poorly planned, uh, poorly executed. I mean, these are the the kinds of assumptions about this uh, about this practice. 
Um, and, you know, this is not to, I, I, like I said, you know, these new wave films that you were just mentioning were, were absolutely formative for me and, and, and for, for many of us. And this sort of global new wave phenomenon is something that I think most of your listeners understand and, and have experienced. And they go to see the latest uh, film by one, you know, one of the directors you mentioned, the art cinema directors. They go to see it at an art house or at a festival or a, another location. Um, what is probably less explored is this um, other global phenomenon, which we might call global golden ages, right? Um, in Iran, you know, it, it might be a little bit of a stretch to call film Farsi a golden age, but but um, speaking of sort of national cinemas that emerge, you know, in the mid-century or let's say around 1950 or, or after that, a little bit after that, that are genre films, they're popular films, um, there's a, a kind of local star system. They don't, for the most part, have aspirations to playing at world film festivals uh, as they're kind of emerging in the 1950s too. Uh, they're playing for a local audience. And yet they are deeply influenced by cinema as a global medium, right? They're, they're taking pieces from different genres and processing them and remaking them in their own image. Um, they're creating collage films that are combinations of different genres that are only recombined in this specific way. And I think it's important to think of that as a global phenomenon that is very different from the new wave phenomenon, but, but just as important in our understanding of, of cinema history. Right. And it's one that's a kind of it's a kind of a dark spot in our it's a shadow in our understanding of cinema. Right. History. Right. And this I mean, the crux of the argument in your book is at, that you mentioned a little earlier when we were talking about the um, uh, the Middle East not being seen as big enough for business for by, by the Hollywood uh, studios, et cetera, uh, up until a little later, up until, say, the 1970s. Uh, you argue that this invisibility of the Iranian film market is part of what creates the conditions where there's lots of creative flexibility to remake, repurpose and edit films. Can you expand on that? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, going all the way back to sort of re-editing and, and, and reassembling like serial films in the silent era, um, there was a sense that there was a freedom on the part of the exhibitor to uh, reorder these uh, serials or place them in a fashion that will be most advantageous for, for their audience. Um, the dubbing is another important component um, that, that is, you know, many, many uh, indigenous industries had, had dubbing cultures, but Iran's is spectacular and ornate and has its own star system uh, and has, you know, multiple dubbed versions where, you know, fans understand um, you know, the, 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 the different dubbing performers who perform each, each version, right? Uh, so this is a, a culture of remix, uh, a, a culture, uh, that adds, uh, value at every stage in this, what I call the process of relay. That is, you know, each, each stage is not necessarily aware of the other stages as an, as an object moves through these, um, around the world. And, and at each stage, value is added, creativity is added. But is it fair to say um, that the the argument is that because uh, Iran, not to be disrespectful to our, our Iranian heritage, but because Iran is seen as irrelevant for, for for the large part by by some big you know movie studio, it's off the radar enough that they can do whatever the fuck they want there you know with these films and and no one's going to actually police it. Is that the case? 
Yeah, they are absolutely off the radar. Um, and, uh, and not only is no one going to police it, as I was starting to say before, um, no one can charge the rate that they charge other places like the dub films, for example. Uh, so they can't monetize uh, the the intense film culture that is emerging in Iran. Um, and so I'm really excited about any film culture that grows and um, becomes sort of vibrant and interesting and has all these different dimensions that is not able to be captured or monetized by business interests from abroad. And I feel like Iran is a very interesting case study in that regard. So they're literally editing, changing, uh, affecting films. Um, there's two things happening. That's happening. But then there are these films also being made in Iran by the late 1950s and early 60s that um, seem to just be completely borrowing from the story and style of American films. You, me you mentioned a film called Broken Talisman that seems to be a copy of Hitchcock's Spellbound. Uh, can you talk about that trend that starts to take place? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of remakes, uh, and this was something that was discussed like into the the, the 1970s of, of you know the the way filmmakers borrow and you know what what are the ethics of borrowing? Um, how how much should we borrow? Uh, how should we do it in, in an ethical way? Uh, but yeah, uh, Broken Talisman um, that that film, you know, it's not a direct uh, copy of of uh, Hitchcock's uh, spell. Um, Sorry, what's the bound. what's the Persian title Sorry. of that? Just so that folks know, uh, Telesmik Shekaste uh -huh. is is broken broken talisman. Sorry, Afsungar is the one that is a sim. It's very similar to Hitchcock's Spellbound, um, but there was some debate over. Basically, Spellbound was playing in Iran, and Selznick uh, was alerted by the uh, intermediary distributor in Cairo about uh, this uh, illegal, unlicensed copy playing in, in Iran and making all this money for Iranian exhibitors. And so Selznick, David O. Selznick, you know, the producer of Gone with the Wind and many other films, including Spellbound, uh, sends someone to Iran and, and interviews them, and they say, no, 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 you just have Telesma Chaudet, Confused with Telesma Shikaste. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's, uh, it, don't worry, it's just, the, it's a different film. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and so the point of that story is that Selznick said, okay, cool. The, the film isn't showing in Iran. Um, we're, we're done talking about this. And so you have the producer of the film siding with the exhibitors who are showing unlicensed copies against the intermediary saying, let's, let's, keep this situation invisible because I just want to send my films away and I don't want to worry about them, um, these sort of disputes about rights, uh, because I like the situation like it is. So I, I just think that that story kind of changes the, the way that, um, we see the, the, the issue of what we could call piracy or the, you know, this negative connotation of piracy when in fact many situations thrive on this sort of invisibility. But where did, where, I mean, where were copyright issues in, uh, where did they land in the in this growth of the film industry in Iran, especially when we're talking about the flood of foreigner Western films coming into Iran in the the pre-revolutionary years? Was there uh, you talked about the ethics of talking about whether we should we should copy this stuff, but uh, were there actually I mean were, were there copyright laws? Well, you know, um, as as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, you know, Iran's uh, relationship with uh, with international copyright agreements has been very loose uh, at at best, and that and that goes back throughout history, right? Um, 
there were licensing agreements. So a, a distributor of films in, let's say, Los Angeles or New York would say, you had to destroy this film after two years. And all, we don't want the film back because it's too expensive. It costs more to ship it back. Than, and then we would have to maintain it, which costs money, right? Um, so all we want is a certificate that says you destroyed it, right? <laughs> um, that you, you took an axe and you drove the axe through the center of the reel and destroyed it. And what exhibitors would do instead is they would, um, I mean, one of the stories is that they would take um, a little piece of film that they didn't care about and they would put that, or, or they would put a, a piece of the film they were supposed to destroy around a worthless film. And then they would ax that in front of the uh, officials <laughs> and then get the certificate. And then they could save the valuable film. And then back um, to back to playing uh, Spellbound at the local spellbound, Roxy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep it going, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, another more plausible story is probably just that, you know, you can, it's not hard to forge a document. And so you could forge these certificates of destruction. And the distributors, the original distributors didn't care as long as nobody raised uh, an issue with it, right? Um, so then these films could kind of circulate freely after that, um, as long as no one complained. But it's, but such, a, it's, it's, it's such a crazy idea, though. On, I mean, I guess because it's so new to me, this thought of please destroy the content so, so that so mm. that nobody can enjoy it without paying us. I mean, it's uh, it's it, uh, first of all, it's uh, it feels immoral. What do you mean destroy the art, destroy the film, right? But but yeah. uh, it's it's I guess juxtaposed against the costs of having it sent back and then maintaining it and all that. That you, as you say. Uh, do, please destroy our product. Please destroy Hitchcock's film. It's fantastic. It's, mm -hmm. it's so strange to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, we're going back to the issue of the ethical question that you, you mentioned earlier. You know, there, the, I think there's sometimes an assumption that forms of unlicensed copying are only opportunistic um, attempts by by uh, bad actors who want to make uh, cheap profits and cut corners. But in fact, there's a huge discourse. You know, when, when Iran um, signs certain degrees of copyright, international copyright protection in the 1970s, um, you know, there's a whole range of intellectual discussion in the press, in, say in the, the early 1970s, about, you know, Okay, we'll sign certain things, but the important thing is that if any of these copyright restrictions mean that we will keep works of art or books, important books, out of the hands of young people who are smart and want to read them because they can't afford them because the publishers now have to pay licensing fees, huh. then the whole operation needs to be shut down. Because, at, you know, making these products available, these films available, these works of art available to the people of Iran should be our primary concern before we sign on to any of these international copyrights. Yeah, so that's an ethical although, question. Although, I, I respect that uh, that line of thinking of like, we got to get it into people's hands, but that is exactly what has led to an ongoing culture of um, just complete disrespect for any kind of publishing or, or copyright. I mean, even today, there are uh, internet sites, uh, you know, here, here in Canada, I'm sure you, you know, you've, you, where you can just find and download Iranian films uh, that would be unthinkable in the American market. Like you wouldn't, you know, you, they'd, the studios would come after you, you know, you, could, you can't be Netflix and, and not let the studio know, you know. Uh, and, yeah. But it's just in the, in, in the Iranian culture, even in the current diaspora, it's still kind of okay. I get, yeah, I, I see your point. And I think the question there, it, it rests on whether the person you are um, 
borrowing the material from represents a an artist, a sort of disempowered artist struggling uh, to, to make a living, or whether they represent a, a media empire like Hollywood Studios in the 1950s. Um, and the issue is, should be not should everyone be allowed to copy in every way? But how do we protect ourselves against mm. the the power of a massive industry when we have a very small industry in comparison? That's a great point. That is a great point. What about coming from a creative uh, place on this, or a sociocultural place, I, I might say? What did it mean for Persian films to be somehow paying homage to American films, like like Westerns? Like, How were Iranian films being sold as authentic when they're borrowing so heavily from these um, genres that are steeped in a completely different culture? Yeah, I mean, this is this is an important question, I think, for for film history, and and um, I think it 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 follows with the reputations of some of these directors, right? Like, I have a chapter on uh, the crime thriller in in the book, um, and the main figure in that chapter is Samuel Khachikian, who um, in the you know his his kind of heyday of his career in the early 1960s, uh, he's making primarily crime thrillers, film noir. Uh, and these were the most popular uh, genre films in Iran. I mean, by some counts, um, almost half of the local production was devoted to this genre in some form, right? Uh, which is unthinkable. Like it, that, that number is way different if you're talking about Hollywood or you're talking about French cinema or, or another uh, large industry, right? The, Iranians in the early 60s loved crime thrillers. And one of the things that's said about Khachiyan's films is that they look too much like, um, you know, Hollywood films or they look too much like French uh, crime thrillers. Um, what I would say in response to that, I mean, I'd say a couple of things, but but one is is just that, you know, this genre itself, film noir, it emerges as a genre that looks abroad, that looks to some other place, right? It, it could be Hollywood films looking to German style from before the war, or French intellectuals who coined the term film noir, them looking at these disenchanted dark American films of the post-war period, these crime films, and defining them in a particular way. Um, it could be British uh, writers of crime fiction looking to France and to the US. Um, it, it's always about this elsewhere. right? And so for Khachikian to be creating these crime films that are imagining this elsewhere, are looking to this elsewhere, is not imitation of a genre. It's in fact the essence of the genre. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and so, so I think in a lot of genres work like that. They they thrive in circulation. Mm. Um, so, so we should uh, admire directors who who are, are are shameless about their energy for all of these different styles and try to incorporate as much as possible into their films. Yeah. Well, there's that. And then there's literally sampling from the, the, the film. Right. <laughs> and one of my the, my favorite things that you've done is uh, you've discovered some of these films where uh, literally soundtracks or sound from Western iconic Western films uh, gets pirated or sampled and put into Iranian films. Now, these are this is not now borrowing a plot. This is actually an Iranian film that is using the sound or soundtrack from a Western film. You have a couple of these examples. I don't want to play them. Um, the first one uh, is using the soundtrack of Bernstein's score from West Side Story. Can you set this up? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, from a, a film that is sort of a remake of West Side Story. Uh, you know, the, the English title would be like uh, Tough Guys and Dandies. Um, and it's two gangs. Uh, one are sort of the neighborhood toughs and the other one are the, the kind of um, 
over the top stylized uh, dandy figures. Um, and it actually plays elements of the West Side Story score. We hear the sort of snapping, that kind of jazz snapping from the beginning of the film on. And uh, what happens in this particular clip is the kind of rumble scene, uh, you know, like the rumble scene in West Side Story, uh, the two gangs. Um, they fight. Um, but the way the scene is set up <laughs> is that you have, uh, the, the dandies are snapping with that one handed jazz snap. Yeah. Uh, and you should the, use the Persian title so at least your audience are going to know what. Go, go ahead. So that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so the gigolos are doing the snap like the, like the jets, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the Johels, they are uh, doing Beshkan, the, 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 the two-handed, uh, much louder, much more forceful snap. Right. Uh, and, you know, this, you know, the, and I know, I, just calling back to one of your um, guests you had on, on the program talking about soundscapes in cities, uh, you know, this, this is, in many of these theaters, these films played in loudspeakers, um, in many of the theaters, films played in loudspeakers outside of the theater, and and people, especially children, would hang out and listen to the soundtracks of films. Hmm. This sound that you'll hear, I mean, I can't imagine that uh, an audience wouldn't sitting outside, not even watching the film, wouldn't hear the difference between the the Jets jazz snap and the Beshkan, <laughs> right? And uh, totally get the joke without even seeing the film. So it's part of the soundscape of the city as well as as the soundscape of this particular. Film. Let's just play this clip. Go ahead, Chad. <laughs> but 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 it's literally sampling the the melody from from Bernstein's score, right? I mean, that's it is, yeah. It's not just borrowing the idea of the hand, the, the finger snaps. It's, uh, it's yep. literally, hey, hey, everybody, this is West Side Story. Um, yeah. The other one is just as interesting. It steals from the, the soundtrack of the epic film Gone with the Wind and Tara's theme. Uh, set this one up for us, will you? That's right, yeah. And what we hear, uh, so this is the clip from uh, from Party in Hell, um, a film that Samuel Khachikian worked on. I already mentioned him. Uh, and uh, it's this very interesting kind of fantasy film. Uh, for those of your listeners who know Georges Méliès, it, it sort of borrows elements from that kind of early cinema style. And this this character uh, in this kind of fever dream goes into hell and and uh, and goes through these kind of adventures, and this is the moment where he has this kind of change of heart. Uh, he realizes the error of his avarice and 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 has this important sentimental transformation, this emotional transformation, and so he's grabbing these um, the, these bills, this money. Um, to the sound of the Barber of Seville, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is, you know, I, we probably know it from Bugs Bunny. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> if, yeah. if you're not uh, well well steeped in the history of classical music, you at least watch Bugs Bunny, right? <laughs> yes. um, and, and Iranian audiences would have, you know, watched uh, these Bugs Bunny shorts too. Uh, they were, I was at the Warner Brothers archive tracing these films and how they were shipped um, into Iran. So they definitely played. And so you have the soundtrack for Barber of, of Seville. And, uh, and then at the moment, uh, the, the main character has his kind of emotional transformation. You just cut the sound abruptly to a terrace theme from, uh, from Gone with the Wind, which is this classic sentimental overture. Yes. And we hear that in several Iranian films, but we, you'll hear it very clearly in this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I love that, uh, I mean, you know, there's this this tradition that we have of claiming everything started with Iranians, you know, we invented (laughs) everything. So I love that we invented sampling, you know, that has now become the thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. Remix culture is ours. That's right. We, we started the remixes back in the, uh, in, in this era. So, so in an example like that one, there's no movie studio, there's no composer, there's no, there's nobody that comes after, um, these folks and says, Hey, you can't use that. No, no, there, there isn't. Um, you know, there, it, it is a kind of challenge, uh, you know, for those of us who are involved in getting these films at like archival film festivals and, you know, preserving them and re-releasing them, that kind of thing, or playing them on television. It's a problem now with getting TV rights to show some of these films. So that's, huh. I mean, that's a huge challenge because you have sometimes copyrighted material that is part of the soundtrack for the original Iranian film. And, you know, an Italian TV company won't buy it unless the owners of the rights to Bernstein's score approve, um, you know, or or can be paid. Yeah. The chickens are coming Um, home to roost on on Tara's theme. (laughs) But Um, at the time, it wasn't uh, it wasn't enforced at all. And and it was just a a free space for music editors to explore this art of collage. Okay, let's talk about dubbing. I've been looking forward to talking to you about this because you you discuss it a fair bit in your book, Relaying Cinema in Mid-Century Iran. Uh, And this is a big part of the story of the rise of film culture in Iran in this era and beyond. Uh, first of all, in the silent era, there are, you mentioned it earlier in this interview, there are insert titles um, mm-hmm. as well as subtitles that have been used. Insert titles would be when they put up a, a board and there's some words between between shots, right? Or between like uh, things that we're seeing. Is that what an insert title is? That's correct. And it was used even in the uh, sound era as, as well. Um, you know, intertitles you know, those of us who have watched a number of silent films, we know that that's the common way that language is communicated mm-hmm. um, on screen in silent films, usually very, you know, one line or one sentence. Um, but even in um, feature films that were showing in Iran, let's say in, you know, 1948, uh, there were insert titles often in those prints, and they would just cut the film, they would put in, um, you know, they would photograph the text that they would want the, the audience to read, and they would just stick that into the print. Right. And you would take like an hour and a half long film, and suddenly it would become a two and a half hour long <laughs> right, film. Right, right. Because of all these insert titles. Okay, so that's the tradition. There's also subtitles, which of course are a commonplace for us today. Anybody who's been interested in foreign films over the years is, is used to subtitles, and certainly now in the Netflix era, we you know subtitles are are the norm. Why was dubbing so much more attractive to uh, audiences in Iran from the get go? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is uh, you know the desire to read uh, subtitles sometimes is low. Um, Sometimes the ability to read subtitles when you're talking about literacy rates in different periods throughout history, the ability to read subtitles is is low. Um, So those are those are clear factors. Um, I think another important factor is uh, a dubbed print can localize a film in a way that subtitles cannot, right? So you can have a local actor, a performer that your audience members know, 
who will localize some of the phrases, who will change sometimes the performance of a particular actor, mm. who will change the actual dialogue, uh, actually rewrite some elements of the script to make it more appropriate uh, <laughs> for the audience. Mm. So it's this, it's again back to this theme of, of creative transformation, of adding value uh, rather than being derivative. That is, is uh, I think, an important way to see dubbing. Well, let me get to the creative part, but first in terms of the technological part, you you, you speak about Iran being leading the world at the, in this moment in terms of innovation when it came to dubbing practices. How so? Well, one technology that they used a lot was the magnetic um, sound uh, stripe. So we're not talking about like magnetic VHS tapes that, that comes in the 1980s. Um, but even in the, you know, the 1960s um, and, and a little before that, you have this um, magnetic uh, sound stripe um, that is actually glued to the, the 35 millimeter celluloid film. You have on the side of the film, just outside the image, this magnetic stripe that's glued on. And you know, you were talking before about these films aren't even copied, they're just sort of circulated around the world. Well, that, it was expensive to copy films, particularly color films, like Technicolor films, those had to be done in a special Technicolor lab. But you can get a Technicolor print and attach, you know, the Technicolor print costs you, you know, $600, $700. You attach this magnetic stripe to the film, and then you have your Iranian actors uh, performing all the character voices and the, the dialogue um, and voiceover, if there's voiceover. Uh, in a sound studio, uh, and then that is then recorded directly onto that magnetic stripe, uh, and then suddenly you have this dubbed print made at very low cost uh, that doesn't require all these different components. You know, normally studios would send the soundtrack separate from the score, separate from the dialogue track, and it, you didn't have to have any of that. You could just have the one positive print and put the mag stripe on it. And mag mm -hmm. technology was not in heavy use in uh, even in Hollywood, right? It was seen as a kind of hi-fi expensive technology um, and it was used a little bit magnetic stereo in mid-century. But in Iran, it was a, one of the driving uh, factors of the ability to dub prints in an affordable way. And this idea that you mentioned earlier that it's it's so interesting to me that 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 the idea of linking Hollywood stars so you have the some big American film with Hollywood stars that people recognize even in Iran at that point uh, their voices being dubbed by local celebrities so you get sort of a double whammy of star power uh, it's mm -hmm. fascinating and and so it, does it follow that um for one particular star or this is a marilyn monroe movie we've got to call um uh Farzone, who who does the regular <laughs> voice for marilyn is that i mean how does it work yeah absolutely and if if Farzane is sick for one film uh and and you have to call someone else uh your audience might uh might be <laughs> upset you know <laughs> Uh, it, you know, and it, so, and it's not just the doubling of the stardom, it's actually a tripling because there's the, the person who sings the songs as the voice of the actor you see on the screen. There's a person who delivers the dialogue. And then there's a person who performs with their body, their, their, their image on the screen. And those are sort of three channels of stardom that kind of braid into a, a, a single character, um, in, mm. in an Iranian film. Can I say that I, I know this is, um, probably heretical for me to say this and i'm saying it through the prism of the 21st century as a guy who you know grew up in the west but the dubbing you know when i look back at some of these iranian films that are dubbed it, it, the dubbing is horrible like it doesn't it doesn't even make sense like it doesn't it's not even close to approximating the the movement of the mouth but that doesn't yeah. seem to 
bother anyone. It, is that just a socialized thing? Like if you're used to seeing that there isn't really a sync with the sound of the, the voice and the dub, that it doesn't matter? I, I would say, yeah, you, you know, an audience learns to accept certain conventions. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of things that, that we, you know, accept when we, we watch even a high budget film, um, you know, streaming on, on a major uh, service uh, that are just part of the conventions of the genre. And so I, I, I generally like to think that that audiences, like if, if we understand something unusual about a, about a particular film, I like to think that the audiences at the time also understood uh, what was going on and they were kind of in on the joke, uh, you know, and they mm. were participating in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, lips uh, not, not synced uh, was sort of part of the experience. I mean, I think of like watching underground animation where the, the voice is not synced mm. to the animated animation of the, of the lips and that just being kind of part of the, part of the experience, part of the performance. But I, but it certainly has led to a familiarity and, a favor of uh, Persian audiences with dubbing because I mean I, I I have even had people say you know because we know we have an audience for this this program in Iran um, Azam why you don't dub it you know like why, why you, I mean dub a podcast it doesn't it doesn't even make sense you know, what, mm. <laughs> it's, it, but obviously it does make sense to some people who suggest it who, who I suppose come from a culture of thinking dubbing is normal or that would just just find somebody who has the Gion voice and somebody who has the Kaveh voice and have at mm. it right yeah, I would love it if you dubbed this podcast, especially this episode. <laughs> but I, I'd like to request a, a very, a very deep and macho voice for myself because uh, my, my, my voice is not appropriate for dubbing. <laughs> well, yeah, I I have so uh, enjoyed this uh, this conversation. I, let me let me finish by asking you some some sort of broad questions, uh, if I may, and one of them being back to the sort of notion of film Farsi uh, and this period that we you, we've been talking about the fifties. 60s in Iran. I mean, there is this sense that I mentioned Kimiai and Merjouia before uh, that, that, that when they revolutionize Iranian cinema uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, films like Qaisar and The Cow and The Deer, that Iranian cinema is coming into its own. It's finding a voice that is less reliant on borrowing from the traditions of Western cinema, etc. Is that, is that true or is that too simplistic? Um, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say anything that, um, that gives the impression that I'm downplaying the significance of those films. I mean, I, I've repeated this a couple of times throughout the interview that, you know, I consider these directors to be inspirations and to be, to be brilliant. Um, if, if we're talking about cinema history, uh, if we're talking about how we, the tools that we use to understand phenomena in the, the, the long history of this medium, then I think one of the approaches we might take, even like even to something like Reisar, right? Um, there is a strong connection between that film and a film starring Steve McQueen called Nevada Smith, right? Uh, it's another kind of revenge fantasy where the, the character uh, kills um, somebody who has committed a, a crime uh, against him in different, very specific locations, right? Um, and of course, uh, it has the, you know, the famous um, shower scene that is cut in a way that calls back to uh, Hitchcock's Psycho, mm. right? Um, and so yeah, I think you can trace, and that's not a, you know, that's not a, a problem for that film. I think that's part of the richness of that film is that it's made by a filmmaker who loves cinema, 
you know and I, I think in the same way you could talk about like this recycling of Tara's theme in some of these older films obviously not the same level of of careful creative composition mm. um but in some cases you know it's it's really interesting um but it's an announcement Tara's theme this is cinema this is gone with the wind this is spectacle mm. right i it's it's an expression of of cinephilia it's an expression of love for cinema in in each case and you can trace these threads that run throughout even though you know very well that as you say this beginning of the new wave marks a a, a serious departure in the kinds of films that are being made so if the 50s and 60s in that period and and before are characterized by um the the questions around the access and circulation and distribution what happens uh, obviously before the revolution, but what happens w when big Hollywood companies do become officially involved in distribution in Iran by the 1970s? You talk about deals between, say, Warner Brothers and the Rex Cinema in Iran. This is by the 70s. How does that mm -hmm. change things for interested Iranians? Yeah, that, so the um, the fun period, the, the period of, of kind of wild experimentation uh, transfers over into something else once once these offices are established. Um, you know, it's, it's it marks a shift. So for me, I'm I'm really excited about writing about this kind of wild period of of sort of dubbing and this these affidavits of destruction and these prints that lived on. Um, uh, but of course, there are continuities uh, as well. You know, in the in the 70s, I mean, the the, the famous Hollywood director William Wyler comes to the Tehran International Film Festival uh, in the early 70s and. I, I went to the Weiler archives in uh, Beverly Hills and looked for uh, all of the prints that he sent from California for the festival. And, and uh, there's one print they couldn't locate. They couldn't find somebody who was willing to distribute it. So he goes to Iran and he's like, I really want to show this film. And he winds up making a deal with a collector of films that has one of these films that was supposedly destroyed, supposedly destroyed by the axe mm. um, several years ago. And Weiler says, Sure, that's great. I'm so glad you didn't destroy my film. Uh, why don't you use that print and show it at the festival, right? So these these kinds of things do do persist even in a situation um, where there is more uh, oversight in the 1970s. Hmm. A final question to you, which is, um, I mean, it, it it is not the period of your book, and it's a it's a tougher one to answer because it's, it's a general one, but. If if the mid 20th century, as you made the case of Iranian film culture, should be seen within the context of distribution and circulation as determining factors uh, in terms of the kind of films that were being seen and made and sculpted, how should we see Iranian film culture since the revolution of 1979? Yeah, that's that's a a huge question, um, and of course there are you know very different periods, right? There's there's a period uh, you know right after the revolution, um, you know through the, the sort of wartime period and the the kinds of you know if my whole book is about obstructions and restrictions, there are certain kinds of restrictions then, and then we have the early '90s, which is a very different cultural moment. Uh, then we have the digital uh, era. Um, you know, I think one of the common sense arguments that you can make about the current digital transmission of film and television um, is that it has accelerated this kind of fan culture, right? Or this culture of translation and dubbing, right? I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, the last time I was, I was in Iran, it was like five or six years ago and Game of Thrones was, um, you know, really big at the, at the time. Uh, and we were watching it every week uh, when it was released. And I was so, I was always surprised how my friend was able to get a copy of the latest episode 
with Persian subtitles mm. only seven hours after the the episode premiered right, uh, right. around the world, right? So that kind of accelerated translation and, and fan culture, you know, that's part of the, the digital era. Um, I would sort of temper that observation as a historian, right? We don't, we get a little hesitant when we t uh, start to talk about firsts and rather we want to talk about um, how this current moment returns back to, um, you know, phenomena or patterns from previous eras, right? So I would, I would sort of look at that phenomenon and that, that kind of rapid recirculation and transformation, um, in the context of things that happened earlier, you know, like, um, the, the video dealers, uh, on, you know, selling VHS tapes. I mentioned this right, very briefly right. before, right? In the 1980s, um, you have, uh, a more or less closed media environment, and yet there's a, an elaborate underground industry. My colleague Blake Atwood has written about this elo eloquently. Um, an elaborate underground industry that is circulating these uh, videotapes um, throughout the 1980s. And there's a whole fan culture around that, right? Different dubbed versions, yes, yes. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing, people collecting them. Um, and then the same thing goes for, for the dealers in the 50s and 60s who were circulating 35 millimeter prints and transforming them, right? In each case, the means by which the films come to audiences are just as important as the films themselves that are coming to yes. audiences. And by the way, I mean, I, I, now that I think about it, it's, it's kind of an unhelpful question because the implication being that, um, that the years after the revolution are a monolith, like the last 43 years can be seen as one thing. And as you, as you correctly ex, uh, explain, there's, there's different eras within uh, the post-revolutionary era. Um, but for those first two decades, I mean, before, say, the digital era that, um, that we're in now, um, it, it, it once again, Iranian film culture really once again is about access and circulation, isn't it? In, a, in just a, in, a, in a different way. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's this time um, of a certain kind of restriction of of imports. Um, you know, initially there were officials trying to use a sharpie marker to to uh, eliminate on the film itself um, parts that should be um, excised. Um, but there is there is restrictions. Um, you know, at that time, which actually allows to some degree um, a, a certain kind of filmmaking to flourish, uh, and this is. This is really, I mean, there was, there was, there were new wave directors who were receiving some recognition before the revolution, but obviously the story of the, the new Iranian cinema directors from the, you know, late eighties and the, um, and, and beyond, um, you know, they really made a, a name, uh, for, uh, local production in, in a, in a very dramatic way and sort of winning awards at festivals. So it was, it enabled a certain kind of globalization, um, that other filmmakers from the earlier decades were, we're striving towards, but you know, this this was a kind of flourishing of that particular kind of globalization at that time. Dr. Kave Askari, I've really enjoyed this. I thank you so much for the time for the book, and I hope we do it again at some point. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Bye bye. Bye. Dr. Kave Askari, an associate professor and director of the film studies program at Michigan State University. His new book is entitled Relaying Cinema in Mid-Century Iran, Material Cultures in Transit. Dr. Kave Askari, join me from East Lansing, Michigan today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 22, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC.
on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That is our website, rookmedia.com. Thank you to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savi Roham, Aray Mehdad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already on this platform or any of them or all of them. Find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. Mizun Machine.